The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to our monthly Fusatsu Atonement Ceremony. Um, feels very good to me to be with you tonight. Um, it's been, uh, uh, for me, a challenging week, a difficult week, and I feel a little frazzled, but it's always good to come back to the Zendo after a week like this and settle into the Zazen and settle into the space and settle into our liturgical forms. It's like a, a refuge for me. So, um, Fusatsu, atonement. This is our um, um, a ceremony that we do every month to um, come to terms with uh, the karma in our lives. And I think what's really important about the ceremony is that it begins right off the bat by recognizing that we are complicit in all evil karma ever committed. Since of old, on account of our beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance, born of our body, mouth, mouth, and thought, so, uh, I think it's, if you don't like the word complicity, uh, we could say we, I'm responsible. If you don't like the word responsible, we could say uh, you're, you're connected to it. Uh, you're not separated from all evil karma. All evil karma meaning all of the actions uh, that cause harm, that cause suffering. We are connected to all of that. and. To me, um, there's something liberating about acknowledging that. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how woke you are. It doesn't matter how enlightened you are. You are complicit in, in all of it. So you can't, can't get out of it. So it's kind of a relief uh, to know that. Um, So uh, difficult week, challenging week. Uh, whenever I hear helicopters and sirens and chanting, then it starts to I uh, start to feel the uh, the burden. Um, and uh, for me, uh, it was difficult because I work at a campus here in Manhattan, and we had a big blow up the past few days, which you're all aware of, I'm sure. Um, so uh, this has to do with the um, protests over the Israeli occupation uh, of Gaza and uh, to the uh, university administration's um, sending in of um, police forces to shut down the protests. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about this from my own perspective, uh, which is not the perspective 
of an Israeli or a Palestinian or a uh, expert on Middle Eastern politics or history or culture uh, or from uh, uh, I'm no legal expert on any of these matters. I'm someone who works at NYU. I teach students there, um, have colleagues there. I live on NYU campus in, in the neighborhood where, where all this was happening. And I also uh, talk to Zen students here at the Zendo about what's going on. And I also try to um, be in line with the Zen precepts. So I don't have the final word, but uh, I can tell you a few stories about my experience. Um, I was doing Zazen on Monday morning and I started hearing a lot of chanting and didn't know what that was about. But after, after Zazen, I opened my email and there was a call and explaining that, uh, that students had occupied uh, Gould Plaza in front of the business school at 4 a.m. that morning. And around 4.30, the police had intervened to try to dislodge them and they were somehow dissuaded from that. And so there was a call for faculty to go and just be present and witness what was going on and to uh, be there to um, defend students if there was violence of some sort. Um, so I went over, this is only a block from my house, um, and uh, I was there for a couple of hours and it was actually very tranquil, um, not a big crowd, but students had set up a camp on this plaza um, and it was pretty um, mellow mood actually, although there was talk about the uh, what had happened in the morning and there was also fear that there could be another um, police uh, action um, but it was pretty pleasant i met someone who i'd only corresponded with over email he was there with his two-year-old child and they were drawing in colors with uh, um, chalk on the on the plaza after a while, I went off, I had other business, and I went back around midday. There was a rally going on, a lot of noise. Uh, a lot more people had shown up in front of the plaza, which was now barricaded off, so you couldn't get in or out. And uh, a lot more people. It was pretty uh, rambunctious, um, boisterous. Uh, I knew one of the students who was speaking. He's, he's actually one of my students. Um, and so I wanted to be there and see what was happening. And uh, it was pretty intense. Um, I don't think it was more intense than a lot of other rallies I've seen at NYU. I think back to after George Floyd was killed or Michael Brown or invasions of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. But it was still, there was a lot of energy. Um, and some fiery discourses. I didn't perceive um, anti-Semitic uh, actions or speech, but someone else might have, might have interpreted what was going on in those terms. There was a small counter protest across the street. Um, and I think that if I'd been in the shoes of the counter protesters, I probably would have been 
a little scared by the situation because it was, it was pretty uh, daunting, the energy that was going on. Um, and then I had other things to do. Uh, I came back at the end of the afternoon because there was another rally happening and uh, there were some uh, people speaking who were actually colleagues of mine in the history department. Um, several who were also standing up there in front of the encampment. Um, all of them Jewish, by the way. Um, and uh, again, there was a lot of um, energy in the crowd and uh, yeah, it was, it was boisterous. Um, and then I had to go off to another event on campus. And just as that event was ending, I got the word from a student there that the police had uh, intervened and were arresting people. And so I was a few blocks away, so I went back to see what was going on. And uh, sure enough, there was a huge police presence, lots of vans, big buses to uh, take people off. Um, and they were removing the camp and they were taking uh, a number of students uh, detaining them, and a number of faculty were also detained, including colleagues of mine. Um, it, I talked to a lot of faculty who were there over the course of the day or when the police intervened. I talked to students also who were there um, about what happened. And uh, it's interesting that the police intervened right after a Seder celebration within the camp. Um, and it was right before the Muslim prayers were supposed to begin. That's when the police went in. Um, the people I talked to had a very different account of, of what had happened uh, that afternoon and that evening from what the administration uh, reported and then what the media started reporting, which uh, reflected a lot of the administration's account. Um, so a uh, number of colleagues, uh, ended up uh, being taken down uh, to one police plaza. One colleague of mine uh, who's in his 70s and disabled and very mild-mannered uh, ended up uh, being held for seven hours. Um, and it was uh, physically quite, quite difficult for him. Um, and after that had happened, the protesters started to filter around through the surrounding streets. And I was over by my building uh, with another colleague. And um, there was a skirmish on the street. And I couldn't tell what was happening, but a lot of people were there filming. And, uh, and then I saw sort of next to me two young girls, um, one wearing a kafia headscarf and another holding uh, her dog. And the younger one was crying. And I looked at them and then I, I suddenly realized that they're the girls who live across the hall from me in my apartment building. And so I went over to them to see if they were okay. And uh, they weren't very forthcoming. Um, and then I saw that their mother was arriving She's Palestinian, she teaches at NYU. They rushed off to her. And then the next thing I knew, they started rushing into the street. 
and I saw the police were leading away, like a half dozen police leading away a man who I looked at and I realized was my next door neighbor. Um, and uh, he's also Palestinian. Um, and as they led him away, he said, I just want Palestine to be free, is what he, he said. So I, I followed him to the police van and I saw him uh, put in and, and they drove him off. Um, and then I went and uh, checked in with my neighbors. Um, this is a man I don't know too well, but I've had some conversations with and I know that he's lost about uh, two dozen relatives to the bombings in Gaza. So that was Monday night. And then um, Tuesday, the, there is an association of professors at NYU that uh, uh, the American Association of University Professors that released a statement that was contesting a lot of the description of what had happened according to the administration. So um, one of my colleagues sent out the, the statement on public media and she turned off the um, the response, so she couldn't see what the responses would be because she knew that it could uh, be upsetting to some people. But someone had taken the trouble to uh, track down her email and write to her separately by email. And uh, in some very choice language, um, obscene language, racial slurs, uh, misogynist slurs, um, and accusations of political extremism. They had threatened her. And then uh, the next day I was to teach my class with the undergraduate students. I realized that I was going to need to have a conversation about what was going on on our campus. And I was a little uh, afraid of, of having that conversation because I didn't know how it would go. I thought that um, they might just say nothing or they might get really upset or some people could storm off or feel uncomfortable about being put on the spot. And about an hour before the class met, I got an email from one student who said that he was uh, uh, practicing Jew. He, the situation had reached the point that he felt so uncomfortable and so unsafe, not only on campus, but in the city that he had decided to move back into his parents' house in Brooklyn. So then I had uh, the conversation in class. I tried to set it up as a place where people would really listen to each other and also be able to express themselves honestly, but respectfully and in a civil and tolerant way. And, uh, and then I just opened it up for them. And I have to say, the response was uh, really surprised me. They were very thoughtful they were very reasoned in their comments. Um, and uh, very insightful, very sophisticated in, in their uh, comments. Um, one student said that he'd never seen such a um, important thing happen in the five years actually that he'd been at NYU. This was the most, um, this had um, sort of struck him more deeply than anything else. Um, and it made him realize for the first time, that whereas normally in the past he'd been pretty cynical about politics in general, he 
felt like he suddenly realized that some things were more important than just his own little self. But the comment that was most common um, that a number of students talked about was the real problem is that we don't have any chance to communicate about what's going on. Uh, their protest started in the student center. They, they um, put up barriers in the student center so that people, students couldn't go in there and, and assemble. And now they've erected a big uh, wall outside of Gold Plaza so that no one can get in or out except under strict control. So these walls have been going up and the students were saying, um, you know, the biggest problem with where the administration has handled this is they went straight for the a violent or um, authoritarian in their words uh, response rather than allowing for some kind of discussion uh, between students and administration, between different kinds of students. So I, uh, I thought that was very, um, very insightful of them. And uh, that evening I came to the Zendo and I ended up talking to a Zen student, one of a number of students in our community who have been practicing very deeply with the conflict that's been going on in the Middle East and the way and its repercussions here. Um, and uh, again, I appreciated their their openness um, and the the um, depth with which they were uh, reflecting on issues and responding to the issues. And they too emphasized uh, the fundamental problem of communication. So, uh, so this brings us, what does all this have to do with our practice a lot? It has a lot to do with our practice. Um, and it has a lot to do with the precepts, which is what we're, we're here for this evening. So we talk about um, the first three precepts, the three treasures we talk about in terms of the Zen peacemaker order, not knowing that is approaching our, the situations in our lives without hopefully without so much uh, prejudice, with a kind of open mind. And then uh, bearing witness to really see what's going on around us. And then taking some kind of action that is consistent with uh, what we're seeing in front of us. It's appropriate based on what we're seeing in front of us. There are a lot of different kinds of actions that we can take. Um, some actions uh, lead to harm, evil karma, um, and some actions are more skillful. And I think that our practice and studying the precepts can help us to address things more skillfully. Um, the kind of action that I wanna focus on now is speech. And it's interesting that of the 10 grave precepts, most of them are about speech. And uh, so what I wanna talk about now is free speech. Um, 
the issue on campus around the country is free speech. There are a series of norms about free speech on college campuses that come from the conflicts in the 1960s and 70s and have shaped uh, academic culture on campus and in classrooms and have always been disputed. They've always been uh, um, involved gray areas and difficult problems. And we have, we've been hitting up against the, um, the blurriness and the difficulty of determining uh, where free speech rights come to an end and where um, harmful speech um, arises. Intimidation or bullying or um, all sorts of um, bigotry, uh, racism. So this is this is a problem that we're grappling with at the moment, um, and all of those norms I think for are up in up in the air right now. But I think that as much as I respect. Um, and appreciate the, the norms of free speech in this country and on college campuses. Our Zen practice is pointing to uh, a deeper way of uh, a deeper kind of free speech. And that's what I want to turn to now. So uh, the precept that I wanted to focus on is the seventh grade precept of not um, demeaning others and elevating oneself. And I think that actually uh, the Zen literature is full of commentary on this issue. Um, in fact, in a way, all, all Zen uh, training has to do with this problem and all Zen treating, training has to do with free speech. Um, So uh, it's all over, uh, this question is all over the, the Zen literature, it's all over the koans. Um, for example, um, Blue Cliff Record, case 71, Wu Feng's Shut Up Teacher. Goso said, if you meet a man of Tao on the way, greet him neither with words nor with silence. Now tell me, how will you greet him? Neither with words nor with silence. How will you greet him? This is a problem of free speech. When we look at this in terms of the precepts, there are a variety of, of perspectives. From a very literal point of view, I think that what this precept is about is just don't speak ill of Israelis and just don't speak ill of Palestinians. Don't uh, demean Jewish people. Don't demean Muslim people. Very simple. Um, anytime you do that, you've fallen into a trap and uh, it's not free speech. The Zen Peacemaker Order has, I think, a very helpful uh, interpretation of what this 
precept is about. It says, speaking what I perceive to be the truth without guilt or blame. This is the precept of not elevating oneself and blaming others. So first of all, it's saying uh, that we do need to be able to speak up in terms of our ethical conduct. We need to be able to speak up um, and speak what I perceive to be the truth, what I perceive to be the truth, which may not be the whole truth. But nonetheless, uh, even if I don't have a um, the uh, property rights to the truth. I do have my own perception of it, and I can speak up about that. But it adds without guilt or blame. And this is a something I think that we can all look at carefully. When we start into a um, discourse of shaming others or ourselves, um, um, what does that uh, feel like? So here I'm especially focusing on the way we um, blame others, but it could also apply to ourselves. When we blame ourselves for things, um, what's, uh, what are we doing there? How, how skillful and constructive is that? We, um, we may need to take stock and reckon with our conduct, but uh, what does the shaming or blaming do? And I think that uh, one way to think about this is to be very careful when we fall into a discourse of righteousness. That to me feels like the, where that guilt or blame can kick in in situations like these. And you can feel the energy in your body when you're being self-righteous. Um, there's, an, there's an even deeper way to think about the precepts. So uh, Bodhidharma said, self-nature is subtle and mysterious. In the realm of the equitable dharma, not dwelling upon I against you is called the precept of not praising yourself while abusing others. Not dwelling upon I against you. That is not setting up this fundamental uh, duality. And this is just taking us back to where we started tonight with the, the verse of atonement, that ultimately we are um, totally inter interdependent, and that in our largest, uh, in the largest sense, we are, we are not separate. And Dogen Zenji says something along the same lines, emphasizing, Bodhidharma calls it the fundamental uh, equality of all beings. Dogen Zenji says, Buddhas and ancestral teachers realize the empty sky and the great earth. When they manifest the noble body, there is neither inside nor outside in emptiness. When they manifest the Dharma body, there's not even a bit of earth on the ground. So again, Dogen is taking us to the deepest level where, again, there's only uh, one body entirely 
noble, the Dharma body. And there is no inside or outside, no native and no foreigner, no immigrant and no, no native, no borderlands, no walls constructed between self and other. Not even a bit of earth on the ground. There's no I, there's no you, there's no Israel, there's no Palestine, there's no New York City, there's no Greenwich Village. So uh, that can sound sort of high lofty and unreal, but um, it's something that you can actually experience on your cushion and zazen, and you can experience this evening if you give yourself over completely to the bowing and the chanting. One last uh, um, case I wanted to bring in. Sorry, this is uh, Blue Cliff Record 71, Wu Fang's Shut Up Teacher. Um, so Pai Chang asked Wu Fang, with your throat, mouth, and lips shut, how will you speak? Feng said, teacher, you too should shut up. Chang said, where there's no one, I shade my eyes with my hand and gaze out towards you. With your throat, mouth, and lips shut, how will you speak? You have to say something. Can you speak freely? Feng said, teacher, you too should shut up. Returning to silence, to the point that Bodhidharma and Dogen were pointing to where there's no separation. It could also be a, a place of speaking freely. But Chang says, where there's no one, I shade my eyes with my hand and gaze out towards you. Where there's no one, no I, no you, no Israel, no Palestine. I look up and I look out and I see you. I cup my ears, my hand around my ears and I hear you. So uh, I think this is a, a wonderful expression of uh, listening freely and speaking freely. I see you um, and I talk to you. I hope we can uh, really uh, take seriously the, the precept of not elevating ourselves and demeaning others and really do the difficult work of communicating, even when it can be very scary, even when it can be very difficult. Good luck to all of us. Mm -hmm.